everybody. Welcome to the NC Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for landlords and property investors as a place to come to build a profitable property portfolio that completely aligns with their goals. I'm so very excited to welcome another guest this week, Parag Khanna, the managing partner of FutureMap and author of Connectivity and the Future is Asian. Hello, Parag. How are you? Hi, very well. Thanks so much for having me on the program. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So thank you for coming on and joining me. So I've got so many questions uh, after... Coming to your keynote speech at the World Built Environment Forum, I was very inspired and I've written down so much. So I'm so excited to, that you've come here today and you've co- agreed to talk to me. Um, the first thing that I really wanted to jump into is uh, I absolutely love mapping and GIS. I am not an expert in any way, but and it's been so long since I majored in G- GIS at university. Um, but the movement of people and being able to see uh, that via overlapping satellite imagery has really intrigued me um, and I did that as a project in my third year which is why I wanted to ask you um, about how you've been using similar technologies to map investment hotspots can you go into detail about how you do that at future map absolutely you know and I think you rightly identified that um, that to map you know the investment hotspots it's really derivative of a broader analysis that involves all of these geographic factors and for me understanding the future geographic hotspots, you know, uh, uh, economically is very much about looking at demographics and capital flows and even geopolitical risk and other kinds of factors that you see happening more broadly and then teasing them down to that local level and seeing how they how they play out. So, for example, I begin with demographic heat maps that show the distribution of the world population. You know, I remove political boundaries. I focus on urban conurbation. Some of them stretch across international boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I tried to argue in my connectography book is that, uh, in fact, the fastest growing populations in the world are often at borders uh, mm-hmm. because you actually have a lot of trade arbitrage across political international boundaries. So people actually seek to live at borders. And so that, you know, sort of thematic, that's one area, you know, that one thing that helps you understand, you know, where people are moving and therefore, of course, what becomes a property hotspot. Mm-hmm. Another is looking at politically driven or fiscally driven investment initiatives. So if a country decides that it's going to create special economic zones to stimulate foreign investment and industrial activity, then you know that over time you're going to have a growing number of residents and migrants coming to those areas. That's what we've seen in dozens of places in China. We're seeing happening in Vietnam now. It also explains, obviously, the growth of um, you know much of the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries with the expansion of the railways, for example, or of course the um, you know the energy revolution, the, the shale revolution in Texas mm-hmm. and in Western Pennsylvania and even in Western Canada. Uh, and so forth, you know, wherever we see industrial activity suddenly emerge. Um, or just take a very contemporary example, the, the bidding war over who will, which city will be the second headquarters of Amazon, right? And that caused a real estate speculative frenzy in various communities around the country, uh, around the U.S., um, as, uh, as the list was whittled down. 
So that's also something very important to look at. So investment issues, fiscal issues, demographic flows, you know, the role of political relationships across borders, if they're improving. And I try to create layerings of all of these and that, that then what results is this kind of, you know, heat map of, um, you know, what, what the sort of, you know, surefire or, you know, best, you know, most likely kind of, you know, winning urban environments are for future investment. So with the different uh, with the different layers, where do you get that information from? Is it things that you source from things like satellite imagery or how how do you forecast that that's coming? Um, no, that's a great question. You know, so, for example, you know, I re- rely a lot on you know, sort of government data and policy for, for some sets of things. So, for example, if a government says, you know, these are the, if you take China, for example, where they say here for the next five years are the major technology clusters that we want to invest in, like wind power or robotics or something. And these are the major universities and geographies where we're going to start to make those investments. Well, you know, Chinese promises are fairly credible when it comes to what their domestic investment policy is going to be. And so that's not something that's a backward indicator where you would say, aha, I see, you know, historical growth here. Let's plan for the future. That's a forward-looking indicator that's emerging right now. Mm -hmm. So most people wouldn't take that into account, but I would. You know, and that helps me forecast a bit what the hot geographies are going to be. In other places, in other cases, I can look at the trend data, like, for example, urbanization. You know, there's lots of good data uh, that we have from different sources about the urbanization rate of different cities. You know, simply put, how fast is the city growing yeah. um, or, or not growing, right? You know, so we see that when property prices get too high in certain cities, you'll have a plateauing, even a reversal, you know, of their growth. So we've seen that, you know, Beijing and Shanghai are not attracting residents as quickly as uh, they used to, um, you know, because properties just become too expensive. Also, immigration policy, right? You can see that if countries are turning cool on immigration, and if they change foreign investment regulations around who can buy property, right, as New Zealand recently did, Mm -hmm. that's going to have an impact, obviously, as well on on the property market. Okay, that's really interesting. And so are you also looking at changes in government structure as well so for example um are you already forecasting at the moment for what's going to happen in the u.s next year for example if trump gets in or he or you get a democrat in and are you also forecasting for things like brexit in the uk oh most certainly you know that that's that's obviously very very important you know if you take uh trump you know his policies have massively reduced foreign investment into the united states although you know, you can see how when it comes to uh, property um, in, in, in real estate investment, there's still many opportunities for foreigners to buy in, obviously, to the United States through various state level or federal investment migration kinds of uh, programs. So people are still taking advantage of that. With Brexit, I think, you know, it's something that's much analyzed. I'm sure you've done entire programs mm-hmm. on it. Um, you know, on the one hand, the UK still has a certain safe harbor kind of stature. But on the other hand, you definitely have to do a more complex analysis to try to tease out whether or not it's going to continue to be an attractive uh, geography in the um, uh, in the years ahead. Um, uh, because, you know, I think that a lot of the reason why people would choose to invest in the UK is because they would want their children to study there. They would want to have a UK passport. Eventually, they would want access to the greater European common market. And if those things are no longer going to be 
possible, then uh, then people are going to be less likely to invest in the UK. So I don't think that you know just short-term indicators where people say, oh well, the currency has remained stable, and oh well, we still have you know lots of capital coming in. Um, that's not sufficient in terms of doing a proper long-term analysis mm-hmm. of um, of you know what the true impact of Brexit is going to be on the UK uh, property market. I really think that you, uh, quite frankly, I, uh, with apologies, obviously, uh, you know, to to to, to Brit, um, but I am a bit I am a bit worried that uh, you know, in the same way, in the exact same way that the decision itself rested on some degree of uh, miscalculation about. Um, uh, you know, the, the actual benefits versus costs of being in the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think of London just for the sake of London. But, you know, one of the, I think, most significant aspects of what I've tried to document about the role of cities in the world is that their, the value of their connectivity versus their total economic value is almost unquantifiable, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so how do you figure out what is just the GDP of London absent the role that London plays in connectivity. Yeah. Or the role that connectivity plays in the London economy. And the answer is you cannot. You know, the my line on that is, um, you know, you need quantum physics, right? You're better off, you know, using quantum physics than economics to figure that out. Because the answer is you can't. And that itself is the highest form of appreciation to say that something is priceless, right? Connectivity is priceless. You miss it when it's gone. And so, you know, I really think that the long-term impact will be will be quite significant because, um, you know, you you will be able to measure what you've lost, and we see that every week with people assessing how much money the UK economy has lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but in any case, you know, I, I do think that it, it requires a much more complex model. So, how far into the future do you? look at mapping do you say okay this is what's going to happen over the next 12 months over the next five months over the next 10 or five years over the next 10 years it's a great question well industries like real estate will actually you know derive from things that are happening over the next you know six to 12 months right so as an industry if i'm looking at the things that are going to happen in the next one to two years one to three years is usually what i look at and i really think it's very difficult to forecast beyond that but let's say that i have certainties about things that are going to happen in some countries like for example i believe that in the next three years india is really going to you know finalize bankruptcy law and foreign investment laws and open up more in terms of capital account liberalization and you know, and I am confident that now that Prime Minister Modi has been reelected with a strong mandate, those laws are going to get pushed through. Well, then obviously in the short term, you'll see you know a hurrah from the markets, as we saw. You'll obviously see you know a, a strong boost in certain sectors immediately. But for real estate, you want to think in a more macro way, in a more systematic way, and say, well, now you know, following this restructuring, we'll start to see more sources of credit because credit has been very tight and expensive in the Indian property sector. Um, And now five years from now, we should have a much broader marketplace, much more stability, much more, um, you know, diversified construction activity going on and sustainable financing, right? And so I think that your industry has the, I don't want to call it a luxury, but I think it's important, you know, to, to if you're in an industry that 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 can think long term, um, that that you should take that opportunity and not only just live in the short term. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. 
And have you seen a change? Uh, and this is this is a question I want to ask you because um, with my students who I lecture to uh, for property management, they are dotted all around the world. And so for and it's mainly commercial real estate that we're involved in for the property management modules. And the the Western students, shall I say, so the people who are in Europe, the people who are in the UK, the people who are in um, the US are significantly seeing retail go into decline. But my students who are based in Hong Kong and the UAE don't seem to be seeing that change in retail. Have you noticed that at all? Is there a, is, is there a significant difference in how uh, the commercial real estate industry is changing and how that's changing across the world as well? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. It's one of the things that I try to get into in my Asia book, you know, because yeah. I talk about the demographics of Asia, the flows of people, the youthfulness around Asia, young people moving en masse in the megacities, the importance of the kind of mixed use property market and the retail sector and, you know, kind of the mall development. And I point out how, you know, if you were to just Google, you know, top 50, you know, new shopping mall product projects in the world, you know, half would be in China and the other half would be in the rest of Asia mm -hmm. and none would be anywhere else. Right. Yeah. And um, so we do see, at least for this kind of secular period, you know, still strength in that area also because e-commerce has not yet undercut it in the way it has in the West. So, you know, I talk about how we think about e-commerce versus retail as an either or phenomenon, right? One, they're directly competing with each other for limited uh, pools of capital, right? Spending power, consumption power in a society with a very finite number and, you know, with, uh, with aging populations and consumption tends to decline past the age of 46. But if you're looking at Asian cities with young populations and the populations are growing and incomes are rising, um, then you don't have that trade-off yet between e-commerce and retail. You have not either or, but both and. And the question really is, how long will we have the both and phenomenon, um, you know, in places like uh, the UAE or in India or elsewhere? Yeah. And, you know, most evidence suggests that, you know, Asians are still both and type of people. You know, they still want to touch and feel and try on and, you know, taste and go out for the experience and see and be seen and all of those things. Yeah. And they don't just want to sit at home and order from Amazon and have a drone bring it to them. Um, so that's kind of, you know, where we are with Asia. But, you know, again, Asia is very diverse and, and unequal. It's not a country, right? It's a mega region of, you know, nearly 5 billion people with immense wealth and also poverty. So we won't see the same answer in every country as to how long that sweet spot lasts for the commercial uh, market. Okay. But there's definitely that difference. I, I kind of feel it, but I don't see it on, as a, on a global scale as you do. So it just really, really interests me about how that's going to be changing. So can we talk more about the Belt and Road Initiative? It's something that you talk a lot about and something I've only started understanding through reading your book, The Future is Asian. My favorite topic. For <laughs> <laughs> anyone um, listening that is new to this, can you explain what this is and how we will be impacted by this, both in the UK, the US and globally? Well, I can give you the two hour version of the two minute version. <laughs> uh, let's, let's go for the two minute version, uh, if I can even go start your it. stopwatch. Uh, but, you know, basically, look, starting in the 1990s, China became the world's largest importer of raw materials and exporter of finished goods like electronics and so forth. So they, they needed to have more diversified supply chains and transportation corridors. They're so dependent on goods 
coming in through the Strait of Malacca between Singapore and Indonesia, this narrow strategic waterway and everything being transported by ship. And they said, well, we need more land corridors as well to reach our you know, biggest export markets like other Southeast Asian countries. Europe is actually uh, China's second largest trading partner behind its Asian neighbors. And of course, they rely on importing oil from the Middle East. So they said, okay, let's start to build all of this new infrastructure and coordinate it with all of these countries and our neighbors and our neighbors' neighbors. And that, over the last 30 years, has evolved into what, in the last couple of years, has come to be known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And that, in a nutshell, is what it is. It's just the largest coordinated infrastructure investment initiative in human history. And it adds up to you know trillions of dollars of cross-government and private sector allocation. It's become much more public and private in nature. There's 70 or 80 or more countries involved. Um, it's mostly bilateral relationships with China. But to me, if Belt and Road is shorthand for the so-called new Silk Road, as many people like to say, to kind of use that romantic terminology, um, it also is not just about China. And this is, to me, the central part of the argument. It's actually everyone is connecting to everyone, right? It's Russians connecting to Iranians, to Indians, and Indians to Southeast Asia, and Southeast Asians to each other. And all of that is also the new Silk Road. So ancient Silk Roads were not just one direction to China and back from China. China is actually just kicking off this much bigger process. So that's roughly Belt and Road. And, you know, what is its impact? Well, it's, it's certainly you know, accelerating the Asianization of the center of gravity of the world. You know, I talk about this shift towards the greater Indian Ocean region. Most world trade in goods today is already happening between China, the Pacific Rim, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Middle East, and East Africa. So in other words, all of the territories that are along the Indian Ocean. That is today already right now, and for quite some time already, the center of global trade. And um, all of that will be accelerated because of this increasingly seamless connectivity uh, between, um, uh, between, between countries. It's so exciting to read about it and see it. I was reading, is it a train line that's going to go all the way from China to London with lots of different stops? Oh, there, are already, uh, there are already several. Uh, these okay. are mostly freight. So, you know, this is imagined mostly as a freight kind of process and route, right? This is this is all about transportation of goods. There are trains already for people, like yeah. the Trans-Siberian Railway, for example, um, you know, and there'll be more of that. But, you know, the fact is that short-haul aviation is also rapidly evolving. So you really don't need to take a 18-day train ride when you can just fly <laughs> for a few hours, right? And so I think this is really about the efficiency of the movement of commodities and materials yeah. and goods. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of li linking everything together. And with that, I remember you saying something about there being new visa opportunities as well. So the, is it the silk visa that's allowing the movement of people? Well, most countries in the region have been liberalizing their their immigration policies and, and, and visitation policies and so forth. So I certainly remember having to queue up for days to get visas for, you know, Uzbekistan and Vietnam and all sorts of other places. And nowadays you just get it on arrival. You know, the digitization of the process has, has helped immensely. So, you know, visa on arrival is now pretty much everywhere, yep. um, you know, even like Turkmenistan, technically. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
you know, I think that is helpful. And so, and then, so that's something that each individual country is doing. And then in terms of preferential access, Asian countries' passports are becoming much more mobile and, you know, sort of valuable in terms of cross-border mobility between each other's countries. So if you have a Chinese passport, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't know, maybe you could have gone to 50 countries without a visa. Now you can probably go to 100 or 120 countries without a visa. So that's also happening at the same time. And yeah, all the Central Asian countries have moved towards what they call a silk visa, where they give each other visa-free access so that they can just trade commercially. And remember that for most countries, most trade is regional, right? It's your neighbors. Um, so that's extremely important. You know, that is globalization is the sum total of all of those cross-border liberalizations that, that are happening. Yeah. So do you actually think that we'll start seeing a movement from west to east rather than east to west? So you'll start seeing a lot more um, Americans and English and European people moving towards the a Asian continent. Are you already seeing that? We, we are, in fact, when it comes to uh, talent, you know, for sure, uh, you know, countries like China now have these, um, you know, their own versions of a green card. I, I jokingly call it the red card, <laughs> um, you know, where if you're a uh, you know, technology expert, scientist or whatever, they'll gladly have you, you know, live for five years. And, and after five years, if you're contributing to society or the economy, you can potentially be granted permanent residency, you know, or something like that. Um, and uh, so then that's just one example. Lots of other countries, Singapore is doing it as well. So that's being taken advantage of by Westerners who are already quite established, academia or other professions. Uh, you see a lot more, you know, expats and retirees choosing to be here on a permanent basis. You know, places like Bali and Phuket are, you know, sunny and warm and affordable and well-connected now digitally and physically. So they've become, you know, choice destinations uh, for people to live for the long term and just be digital remote workers. You see lots of young startup entrepreneurs saying that they want to try their luck in Asia first and foremost, you know, because this is where the growth markets are. And maybe they've already been learning, you know, Chinese or some other Asian language. So they want to put it, they want to put it to use. So a lot of those things are coming together at the same time. See, you'll see a lot of Brits moving over there when they can't get into Europe <laughs> for the next couple of No years. doubt. No doubt. Well, I think you raise an important point, by the way, which is that, um, you know, this is a competitive marketplace. It's a yeah. war for talent. There is a perpetual arbitrage happening in the world. And, you know, just because uh, investment may slow down in one place, it doesn't mean that it's not expanding somewhere else. And, and this, is, this is a critical thing. So talent will move, talent will mm -hmm. flow, uh, like water down the mountain, right? It will find a way. And uh, so there's no question that we're seeing, and this is why, whether it's Estonia or Germany or Romania, these are three examples of just European countries, let alone Asian countries that are saying, oh, no longer gonna work in London or set up your company in London, come here. You know, we've got cheap tech talent, we'll let you register your company in one day, and we'll have no tax on corporate profits for three years or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so the fact is that everyone has learned from everyone else how to play in this game. So making mistakes becomes very costly. You can't rest on your laurels forever and uh, assume that you're always going to be the best. That, you know, it's a very competitive world. But I can, personally, I think that's a good thing. Because what I see it doing is that in Asia, it's accelerated you know, the anti-corruption drive. There are a lot of countries, you know, going back to Belt and Road, that are saying, whoa, China is promising us all this money, 
but if we screw this up, no one else will ever invest in us e uh, either. So we better get this right. Yeah. So I see a lot of, you know, tightening of the belt and, you know, stiffening of the spine and countries that were just hopelessly corrupt and, and clueless in terms of their governance some just some years ago. Now I see them, you know, again, straightening up and saying, we're going to get this right. We're not going to mess this up. And I think that's because also they see that if, um, if they don't play along with, uh, you know, the, the Chinese investment carrot, right, uh, then another country will get it. And then they'll be jealous and angry and bitter that they messed up. And their people will find out about it now because you have more transparency and democracy uh, than ever before. And their people are going to say, how could you mess this up and lose this investment deal to our neighbor? And, you know, I'm seeing that with rising education and transparency and awareness of what's going on and be people just being fed up with corruption and poor public service delivery and low quality infrastructure, all of these things feed into each other in a very positive way. It really is a positive story. Definitely. And again, it goes back to the talent because you want to be in a country where you're treated right as well. I, I've had friends who have moved to different countries in real estate and have had terrible experiences and, and have gone back to the UK, but they, they said that if they'd been treated you know, fairly, there wasn't the corruption that they'd had to deal with that they didn't have to deal with uh, in the UK or in Europe, then actually they probably would have stayed because the, quali the, the quality of life overall is better. So it's about if you clean everything up, then actually you do attract, you attract the talent, which makes your businesses more profitable, which makes more people want to come, which makes the country more valuable. Yeah, I mean, no one leaves Singapore voluntarily, you know, I mean, once you've come and lived here and enjoyed, you know, the, the, the sort of quality of life and the conveniences and the efficiency and the standards of excellence in, in, in government and education and public safety and law and order and all those things. I mean, I've lived here six, seven years, um, you know, being in and out, but yeah. uh, well, the, of the thousands of people that I know here, I've never known anyone to, to want to leave. <laughs> How uh, how long? So you've lived in Singapore for six or seven years. Where did you move from? The US, London, actually. London. Yeah. Ah, um, okay. Yeah. So I had the I had the premonition that a populist wave was coming, and uh, no, 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 I'm just kidding. We <laughs> we actually left in uh, in 2012, and it was it was you know being in London was more academically linked, so yeah. it was not ever going to be a permanent thing. But look, and you know, I spend so much time looking at global cities and ranking global cities and, 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 and looking at those methodologies and data. And I personally still think of London as the greatest city in the world. You know? and, and when it comes to talent, if I think about pound for pound, uh, you know, uh, where are, where's the best concentration of brain power in my personal sort of Rolodex? Mm -hmm. uh, it would still be London, you know. Um, but I, again, I, that, that's precisely why I worry because it's not an eternal uh, condition. Yeah. If you'd asked me ten years ago, I would have said New York, and I don't wouldn't say that about New York anymore, even as a New Yorker. You know, I'm trying to be as objective as possible. But I do see it aggregating in Singapore. I see, um, you know, uh, uh, writers, journalists, academics, uh, finance professionals, startup entrepreneurs, uh, in all walks of life, I'm seeing talent coming here voluntarily and saying, we're just going to register here, do our own thing, you know, associate ourselves with XYZ, operate regionally. Um, you know, there's so much more, um, many more nonstop flights to places like uh, San Francisco, Seattle, and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so I see that, you know, a trickle can become a flood, right? And uh, so cities in Asia are doing whatever they can to, to attract that talent to try and become, you know, places like, like London. 
I've never been to Singapore, but you've sold it to me. Next door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, for sure. Sounds amazing. So do you think that this change in, it's it, it's almost going back to the Belt and Road, it's bringing the world closer together. Do you think it will impact on how we invest or how we should be investing our money in real estate? Oh, I mean, look, absolutely. My, uh, my company, Future Map, is working on what we call the Belt and Road Heat Map. And we're really trying to drill down to the provincial and city level for uh, 10 to 15 major economies that are participating in this broader Eurasian Belt and Road process. Everything from the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf region to Central Asia and Southeast Asia. So we're looking at major countries, whether it's like Russia and Kazakhstan or Thailand, Vietnam, uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, even Turkey and Italy. Um, And we're kind of trying to forecast, you know, if you really try to map out where the connectivity is going to be, which projects, what value are they going to add, where will you see wages rise, what sectors are going to grow the fastest, um, uh, and, and exactly where, what cities and provinces. And there's no question you can make confident forecasts about where uh, property markets are going to, to thrive. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, does the, what does a location need to be a prime investment hotspot, in your opinion? Oh, I mean, you know, as you know, it's sort of a complex alchemy, right? There, there yeah. are many things that make a place desirable and livable. It can't just have good architecture, right? I mean, it has to have, um, you know, stable economic uh, environment, jobs, investment, you know, sort of uh, upward mobility, uh, social culture, um, you know, all of those things are, are necessary. And the, it, the city is not an island. It's part of an ecosystem of, you know, federal regulations and part of a national state. And so you have to have some predictability about that dimension as well. Things can be going well in a city, but not well in a country. Yeah. So can we go back to the issue of connectivity? We started talking about it, but I want to delve a little bit deeper and to ask why is connectivity so important and what defines good connectivity? I know we spoke about it in terms of London and the impact that Brexit's going to have, but what does it mean and why do we need to concentrate on it? I mean, connectivity is sort of shorthand for all the infrastructure that we build, right? Um, you know, which is to say whether it's transportation, you know, railways, highways, whether it is energy like pipelines or electricity grids or communications like, uh, you know, fiber optic internet cables, satellites, you know, the quality of broadband connectivity in the city. You could also obviously apply it to the social dimension of connectivity. You know, how much creative spark is there? How much social culture and dynamism is there in a city? All of those things are part of this notion of connectivity. In cities, it's particularly important because cities are very much driven by the services economy. Um, you know, which, which is all about, um, you know, relationships between uh, smaller firms and businesses, and it requires much more seamless interactions, um, between people. And so to me, connectivity is especially important in the intra city context, you know, so if you're just because the city is big, like Jakarta, it doesn't mean that it's a whole greater than the sum of its parts, right? Mm -hmm. Jakarta is a sprawling mess. It takes hours and hours to get across it. Um, You know, it doesn't have these dynamic, thriving micro neighborhoods and seamless underground transportation systems, you know, to encourage that broader dynamism that makes the city, you know, feel much bigger and greater. Um, So they have a long way to go in achieving the, the potential of connectivity. And so do you think that connectivity is... Uh, is it really closely linked then to things like technology and sustainability? Can, would, 
does having uh does that do they connect oh you know without a doubt i mean yeah. so technology yes because with each kind of evolving generation of technology you know connectivity can be improved and accelerated right obviously we yeah. see this with communication we don't use telegraph cables anymore right um you know we use uh, internet cable, fiber optic internet cables, and satellites, and so forth. So, um, you know, with, with every with every generation, you see that improvement. So that that's you know, I think that part of also what matters for your industry is looking at how those technologies are being deployed. So there are various mm -hmm. indices, for example, of the you know technology preparedness level of a city. Um, you know, to really integrate the latest platform technologies that enable uh, more efficient economic activity um, and that enable smart services, you know, sort of citizen empowerment and access to public services and access to data and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, you would want to look at those kinds of indicators as well, because just because certain technologies exist or are being deployed, it doesn't mean that all cities all over the world, obviously, are integrating them well at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I use indicators like that quite regularly to help me see which cities are doing the best job, but also obviously where the opportunity is, right? Um, you know, for you to work with technology partners to help develop a city that knows it wants to catch up, but hasn't done it yet. And how long does that process take? If a city goes, oh, we need to catch up uh, with technology and sustainability, uh, I mean, that's a huge thing to start thinking about, right? Or can you do it slowly? Well, I don't think any city is alone anymore, right? No. Because you've got lots of technology partners and, you know, uh, um, uh, international agencies, NGOs, and so forth that want yeah. to help stimulate that process. So it, it is well underway just about everywhere, you know, except yeah. for the, the truly poorest places in the world. So that's not really a big uh, concern, I think. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the I, I really, to be honest, I see this activity thriving uh, in every city in the okay. world. The question is just how long will it take, right? Yeah. It will take a long time for an Indian city to reach the standards of a Chinese city, even if they have similar populations and even if they started out similarly poor, right? Yeah. Uh, because obviously you have the pre-existing built environment, you have the thickets of regulations, you have the kind of the slowness of bureaucracy and so on and so forth. But, you know, eventually, you know, we see places getting there. Uh, you know, it's hard to generalize about whether it can, you know, take a long time or, or happen quickly. Mm -hmm. And so what could we do as property investors to make sure that we're moving towards sustainable property portfolios? Because obviously it has to start somewhere. And if we've got property portfolios in the ground of these cities, what should we be looking to do? Where should we be looking to get involved with this? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that now every sector of the economy has to price its climate risk, its water exposure, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the impact of, uh, of of climate change and air pollution and so forth. Uh, obviously, we know what's happening to coastal real estate and, you know, the ability to, to purchase insurance yeah. on coastal property around the world. That's one example. The other is, you know, air pollution. Um, you know, we've seen that 
the Gurgaon, the suburb of New Delhi, was thriving as a construction market, you know, to set up businesses and retirement colonies and so forth. But people didn't factor in just how bad the air pollution would become through economic development. And so, it's, you know, it feels quite unlivable there uh, right now. Um, so I think, you know, you really do, again, need a kind of complexity approach that takes into account these factors. Water availability, right? You know, no one, I don't think that most people trained in a traditional approach to real estate would have factored, would have taken into account that cities like Sao Paulo would be running low on water, right? You'd be saying, wait a minute, they're pretty close to the Amazon rainforest. Why are they running out of water? You know, but you'd have to look at the, 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 the agricultural policies and the reservoir management policies uh, of the country to realize that there are some things going wrong and therefore you may have to rethink where you, you place your bets and build your, your next project. So as a final question then, what can we really see changing in the real estate sector and property investments globally over the next five years? What big changes do you think we're going to start seeing? Um, I think, well, let's say that one change might just be the acceleration of what's already been happening, which is, you know, rapid urbanization will continue in uh, in developing countries, but there'll be a greater emphasis on the second tier cities, the places that you haven't yet heard of. Because remember, when you're talking about countries with populations of 100 million to a billion, you know, people, uh, they can't all fit in one city. You know, so everyone wants, every Filipino may want to live in Manila but they're actually not going to, right? It'll be too crowded and too expensive. So, mm-hmm. you know, governments, smart governments, and this is happening in India too, are saying, look, you can't all be in Mumbai, right? Let's start mm-hmm. to develop, um, you know, uh, not just Bangalore either, but Hyderabad and Chennai and other second tier cities and make them larger, make them, be- you know, better run, better managed, you know, and, and look at populations of 10 million instead of 20 million, 30 million. So I think you'll see a lot more emphasis on, on driving investment into second tier cities. And a portfolio that includes those would be sensible um, because those will be rapidly appreciating assets. You know, um, you know, you may, again, it surprised us many times already how you may never have heard of a city, uh, you know, until recently. And yet you see it skyrocket, you know, in, the, in, in value. And I think that will start to happen as well in some of these second tier cities in Asia. So that's a big trend. Um, I think, again, the integration of the ESG and you know, especially the, the environmental angle. Um, in, in, you know, pricing and in uh, kind of vetting and thinking about the resilience of a portfolio is going to be more and more important, something that, that all people in the industry should be applying mm-hmm. to their portfolio, um, you know, especially because you're looking at assets, you know, that are decades in duration. Um, so I think that's also really important, you know. So we, we already know some of these things. The thing about trends is that you already know what they yeah. are. You just have to, you know, think about how much will be amplified in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I absolutely loved having this conversation. Parag, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Nice <laughs> to speak with you. It's really nice to speak with you. And I'm going to put um, details of how you can find out more about uh, Future Map and Parag's books all below in the show notes. So make sure that you have a look at that. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. If you want to find out more about NC Real Estate, head on over to www.ncrealestate.co.uk. 
And if you love this podcast, don't forget to hit like and subscribe because it comes straight to whichever podcast provider you use every single Tuesday morning at 7am UK time. Thank you for listening today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.